This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 2nd, 2020. There is no shortage of criticism of the police, particularly when they interact with minorities. In this podcast, let's hear the view from the other side of the badge. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes, black people are 2.6 times more likely to get arrested for drug crimes, even though they're committing those crimes at the same rate as white people. You can get statistical analysis that will say pretty much anything that you want to. No, this is this uh, is let, this is this is peer-reviewed uh, research. This okay. is very high-quality uh, research. Okay, well, let, so let me give you some realities. That's coming up shortly. First, I want to say thanks to all of my donors on Patreon. I appreciate everyone who contributes. For the people who don't know, Patreon is a website that lets people donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. And if you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and also at the end of this show. You might remember that I interviewed Aaron Napperstack of the War on Cars podcast last year. He's a big advocate of non-car-based transport. I don't know what he would make of a story from Luxembourg I saw last week, but I suspect he'd be an enthusiast. I'm not. The story is that Luxembourg has decided to make all public transport free to use in an effort to cut pollution and traffic jams. The country has an extensive network of trams, trains and buses, and from now on, you can just hop on and go anywhere, no charge. I say extensive, but of course the country is tiny. It has a population of just over half a million, and it's smaller than Rhode Island, so you could throw a stone across it if you had a good go at it. And it's rich, so they can afford to make the transit system free, They have a big financial services industry, which is a polite way of saying that they launder drug and prostitution money and the funds looted from national treasuries by third world dictators. But that's a different story. Some people are saying that this is the way to go for transit systems. If they're free, then people will leave their cars behind and use these systems that don't cause traffic jams and don't cause as much pollution. Luxembourg isn't the only country going down this line. Scotland is planning to make public transport free for under-18s, and some political parties in Ireland are advocating going the whole way and making the whole system free, like in Luxembourg. I think that they're wrong. There are two big mistakes here. The first mistake is the effect that this won't have, and the second mistake is the effect that it will Let's look at the effect that this won't have first. The thinking is that people who drive will be tempted out of their cars by free public transit. The problem here is that in almost any city in the world, 
public transit is already much, much cheaper than driving. If saving that much doesn't motivate drivers to get on the bus or the train or whatever, why would anyone think that saving just a little bit more will? This whole scheme totally misunderstands why people drive. Look at the cars on any street. There's a huge variety. You can drive anything from a clanger for under a thousand bucks to spending several hundred thousand dollars on a top-end luxury vehicle. But one thing they all of them, except the very cheapest rust bucket, almost all of them have in common is that the driver could have saved a few bucks by getting a cheaper car. From the highest end luxury performance vehicle to the most ordinary car, the driver could have traded down to the next cheapest model. Every single driver, except perhaps the bottom 1%, could have saved a few bucks if they wanted to. But they didn't. They chose to spend more money than they really needed to because they wanted the comfort and the prestige. There's nothing wrong with that, really. I have to say that I do much the same myself with other products. I have a phone that's really much more expensive than the one I need. Probably the same is true for the audio equipment that I use to make this podcast. But if you understand why people do what they do, you have a better chance of understanding how to motivate them to change their behavior. And it's clear that overwhelmingly, finance isn't the main thing that motivates drivers. If making mass transit cheaper could tempt them away from their cars, then it would already have done so. Because in most big cities, mass transit is already vastly cheaper than driving the cars that most drivers drive. But in a lot of cities, there are a lot of people that walk or cycle to their destination. This is the effect that I think making mass transit free will have, even if we don't want it to. Even if drivers aren't motivated to make a modal shift, it's pretty obvious that free public transit will encourage cyclists and walkers to hop on the bus. That doesn't provide any benefit in terms of reducing traffic or pollution, but I'm sure that the walkers and cyclists appreciate it. But the people already riding the bus might not be so happy. Mass transit systems in many cities are already running at capacity. Having walkers and cyclists getting on a few stops before a long-time bus user might mean that they can't fit on, or at the very least that their ride will be a whole lot less comfortable. It might even be so much more uncomfortable as to push those people to drive their journey. And that's the point. All the evidence would indicate that drivers who have a choice to use mass transit and don't choose it do so because they like the comfort and the prestige of driving. So if you have a big wad of money to spend on your city's mass transit system, spending it on making that system free is unlikely to improve anything unless that system is running with loads of spare capacity, which is almost never the case. But if you're thinking of spending that wad to use mass transit to improve pollution and traffic congestion, here's the way to do it. Spend it on making the mass transit cleaner, safer, more regular, more reliable, more extensive, and operating for longer hours. That last point is important, by the way. 
No point in taking mass transit out for the evening if you can't get home. Supermarkets and radio stations that operate 24 hours don't always do it because they make a profit in the small hours of the morning. They do it because they know that if they don't, their competitor will, and the customer who uses it then once will get used to going to their competitor all the time. And, to be blunt, money should be spent on making mass transit systems more prestigious. Tram and train systems are less prone than buses to getting stuck in traffic, but they are more favoured by the sort of people who could switch to a car as well, partly because saying, I got the train, sounds a hell of a lot better than I got the bus. People advocating free mass transit sometimes argue, why can't we do both? Here's why. What you're doing is spending money. Money is limited, or at least it represents limited resources. Every cent you spend on making mass transit free is a cent you didn't spend on making it better. And making it better will always give a better return than making it free. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Randy Sutton. Randy is a retired police lieutenant from the Las Vegas Police Department. He's also the founder of The Wounded Blue, that's the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. He's also the author of a number of books, including The Power of Legacy, Personal Heroes of America's Most Inspiring People, True Blue to Protect and Serve, and A Cop's Life. Randy, you were a cop for a long time. You're obviously into writing books about that now. What's the main message you want to get across to people who read your books? Well, I think the main message is that law enforcement officers are very humans, they're very human people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of negative media uh, portraying, well, actually dehumanizing America's law enforcement officer, mm-hmm. portraying them as brutal and as sadistic as hunting down minorities and killing them. And 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 the reality is far, far different. Um, the uh, reality is that of the, you know, less than, there's about 900,000 law enforcement officers in the entire United States to police 320 million people. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of them are doing it well and doing it the way they're supposed to and leaving positive impacts on on uh, um, on people uh, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality, uh, that most of these men and women are, are um, you know, policing honorably and, uh, and w- w- with compassion and empathy. There's a saying about war that it's long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Is that a little bit like what it's like to be a cop? It is. It is indeed. Um, now, I, my career was, uh, I spent 10 years as a policeman in a small community called Princeton. And I actually left there because it was so boring for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I joined the Las Vegas Special Bomb Police Department where it was not boring to me. And uh, uh, the difference is that that um, you in you're, you're always got you always have to be prepared for incredible danger. You have to be prepared, quite literally, on every interaction. Now, this is this is wherever you're a police officer, you have to be 
um, of the of the mindset that you, you have to go from officer friendly to go into combat mode where you may have to take the life of the person that you're speaking to. And that's mm-hmm. a very foreign type of um, mentality to have for a normal human being. So it, you have to train for it. You have to prepare. You have to prepare mentally for it. And it's very, very challenging. Uh, so that's one of the uh, aspects of law enforcement that really doesn't get a lot of attention. And yet it is the reality that, that officers live with every single day. And um, you said that uh, police have been vilified to a degree in the media. And there's certainly, yes. you know, it's certainly controversial. No matter what your belief system is, you couldn't, you couldn't argue that it's controversial. Do you think that some of that criticism is valid? Well, you know, there are instances that where criticism is valid. Um, you know, there, believe me, there are mistakes made. Uh, there are, you know, uh, men and women who are doing the job that really shouldn't be doing the job. Mm-hmm. There have been, you know, there have been people that have been hired that shouldn't have been hired. Um, and, and there have been, you know, uh, uh, cops who gone bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I did in during my career and afterwards is I, I created a presentation to give the law enforcement officers around the country called policing with honor, mm-hmm. how to, how to survive your career ethically as well as physically and emotionally. So are there times when police actions deserve criticism? The answer to that is of course, yes. Um, are there those that go outside the lines? Are those that, are there those that commit murder um, uh, under the, under the color of office? The answer to that is yes. Uh, so yeah, there are instances that should be criticized where, um, where the system, you know, should take action. And, and that's generally what does happen. The problem is when you have, um, people painting the entire profession with a very wide brush because of the, um, you know, the the acts committed by a few. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's you know that's the that's the problem, and we've we've seen almost an irrational um, response to some of the to some of the um, uh, instances that took place, and there's also been a, an absolute avalanche of lies and misinformation given out about law enforcement. Okay, and, pause, and, pause with that. Pause with that for a second, because you say that there's uh, that. You know, I think you're saying essentially that some of the criticism is unjustified. And I think you might agree with me that some of those criticism is reflexive. That's to say people criticize cops almost before they even know the facts of the situation. Correct. Is it, pos- is it Correct. possible? Is it possible that some of the defense of cops is also reflexive in the same way? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I have to say yes. That sometimes. Um, we, we want to jump in and, and defend actions before we know everything that's going on too. Um, you know, here's the thing. When, when there is a major use of force, when someone is shot mm-hmm. or a, you know, a major use of force and, you know, somebody dies in custody, um, an investigation has to take place. Mm-hmm. And, and that investigation that if you don't get all the facts, it's you can't make a judgment. And yet we have seen on both sides of the of the coin, if you will, uh, that happening. You know, uh, we we want to believe that 
um, when I say we, I'm talking about the law enforcement community. Mm-hmm. We want we want to believe that we're all acting uh, faithfully, that we're all acting um, with the best of intentions, and and uh, uh, you know doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. Uh, we don't want to believe that that some of our some of our badge wearing brothers and sisters are are uh, coloring outside the lines and uh and committing acts of of either criminal acts or misconduct i'm interested uh, randy randy i'm interested that you say badge wearing brothers and sisters and that's something that i think most people in other professions wouldn't say you know a typical lawyer wouldn't regard another lawyer as a brother or sister a typical butcher or baker or candlestick maker wouldn't necessarily regard somebody just who does the same job as them in that those like fraternal terms might that be part of the problem well i don't know that it's it's a problem i perhaps it is um a, a, a communication that needs to be you know uh emphasized a little more i mean the reason that cops consider each other brothers and sisters is because they um are literally in the trenches together. You know, um, there isn't an officer I know that would not literally risk their life for another police officer. Um, and that's a, that, you know, that is not the norm in, in another profession. Mm-hmm. It is the norm in the military. Uh, and that's why there is a camaraderie in the military as well. You know, there's a, there, there's yeah, military, a, there's... military, hold on, hold on, Randy. Military typically have a very clearly defined enemy. And that is an enemy, which hopefully the police don't have. And isn't it maybe sometimes the case, especially um, when you're policing inner city communities or maybe minority communities that are not very well represented in the police, that that type of camaraderie puts a barrier between you and the people who you're meant to be protecting and serving? Not at all. That's nonsense. Uh, the The... Reality is that in in policing minority communities, which I did for most of my career, mm-hmm. the the uh, it's the cops who are caring more about the communities than the criminals who are preying on them. I could tell you this from from years of experience. Uh, honest citizens in in minority communities want the police there. Mm-hmm. They want the police to keep them safe. Um, they ask the police to keep them safe. Sure, but that's, that's a hell only- of a low, Randy, Randy, that's a hell of a low bar. Of course the cops should be viewed as being the, the good guys. You, you can't really set the bar as not being as unpopular as criminals. I don't know what that, what that statement even means. That, that wasn't what I was saying. Okay, we go were ahead. Talking, you, were, you were talking about um, camaraderie uh, as it as it corresponds to um, uh, viewing the citizens as enemies, mm-hmm. the police don't view their citizens as enemies. They view criminals as enemies, mm-hmm. uh, as that as it should be. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you're if you are preying on the people that I serve, mm-hmm. uh, and you are willing to commit violence against them or against me, well, you're not my friend. You're my enemy. And mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to put you in jail and end the threat that I need to end if it is a combat situation. Mm-hmm. That's, that has, that camaraderie in, in law enforcement is an essential 
uh, part of, of doing the job. Uh, officers should have a feeling of camaraderie. Even, I mean, let me tell you, even mm-hmm. police officers feel camaraderie whether they are even in the same country or not. You know, uh, because the job is essentially the same whether you are policing in, in Great Britain or Germany or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You are still dealing with the same humanity and, and human weaknesses and strengths. So that's why there is there is a, a camaraderie because there is a a commonality to the experience, okay. and I don't think that that's unhealthy. Okay, and you've obviously written a number of books that are centered on the way the police do their jobs. Can for somebody who has no, you know who's never been a cop who maybe doesn't have an insight as to what that life is like, do you have an anecdote? Do you have something that you can tell that might illustrate to someone like that what? that life is like? You know, that's a great question. And and you have just actually hit on a topic that is um that is not really spoken about a lot and yet has an has a huge influence on the way people view their police. Mm-hmm. Most citizens have have almost no contact with a law enforcement officer. And when they do, it's generally a a negative contact in that they may be getting stopped for speeding or a traffic violation. The officers may be at their at their business or at their home because they were victimized. So they're they're you know uh, uh, there's this negative connotation. One, one way uh, or another, it's not a happy day. Often, when it's not a call. happy exactly exactly exactly. And I and I I can tell you that um, when I mean the, like the the books that I wrote told about the 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 police experience. And I, and um, when people read them, they view law enforcement officers differently. That's uh, that that was my hope in writing those books, and also um, you know in the feedback that I got from my readers is that Randy, I I never really knew what a cop did or how they felt or what they thought, and and that is actually part of the uh, of a of a larger issue in that cops feel isolated oftentimes from the people that they serve because they they feel so misunderstood. And and I ask you can you pull out of your hat an anecdote that might maybe illustrate that for for some people who don't have that experience? Well, you know, I I I have I have a million stories about about that. Um, you know, uh I I think perhaps we we had a very um a very vocal anti-law enforcement community member in in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. um, this guy, this this guy was a very vocal critic of law enforcement, and uh, I had a conversation with him that started off very negatively. Let me say, mm-hmm. and I I invited him to do a ride along with me to see what a law enforcement officer actually does and contends with on a on a routine um, routine day. Mm-hmm. And and there was hesitancy on his part, but eventually he said, okay. And this this man rode with me for 10 hours. At the end of that 10 hours, that man was a supporter of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. It, it, the change in, 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 um, in the way he felt, he could suddenly empathize because he didn't know, he couldn't know what, what it was like to be a cop. And, you know, and, and, there, and then it, just as... Just let's look, let's turn that coin around too. Um, he was black, I was white, 
Mm-hmm. And during that interaction, he sh- he shared things with me that I would never have known because I had never experienced what he experienced. For example? So by oh, he was talking about uh, the experiences that he'd had um, with law enforcement, you know, feeling like he was being preyed upon simply because he was black. And, mm-hmm. you know, and when you have a frank discussion about that and you get to look at other viewpoints and your mind is open enough to to understand and empathize compassionately with the viewpoints of someone else well that's the channels of communication that create a uh, a relationship and that's really um that's really what needs to happen in order to bridge a lot of the gaps between law enforcement and minority communities i have one sort of working theory and i'll tell you what it is and you can comment on it then that Obviously, there have been some very high-profile cases where particularly black men have died at the hands of police where it is questioned, to put it very mildly, whether the force used was justified. And those incidents are statistically quite rare, but they make an enormous impact on the culture. Is it possible that those incidents, the reason that so much attention is is paid to those incidents is because they are emblematic for a much larger number of people, particularly black men. They're emblematic of much lower level mistreatment from police or maybe just discourtesy or a feeling that they're being stopped when they wouldn't be stopped if they were white. Do you think that that's representing that? I think I think it is. I think that there is there is a mistrust. There is a misunderstanding um, that uh, that takes place. Uh, but I also think that there have been um, in these many of these instances have been so um, mischaracterized and used by uh, certain elements in the community as well as media to essentially create a lie about the, about the law enforcement um, uh, response and about the... Um, What's the lie uh, as you see it? Well, the, the, let's, let's talk about one of the, the... A watershed moment in law enforcement history was mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the Ferguson shooting of Michael Brown. Yep. Now, Michael Brown was uh, uh, characterized as this loving giant of a man who never hurt a soul and that the police, you know, uh, shot him when he had his hands up and saying, hands up, don't shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a lie. It, it didn't happen. It was a fiction. It was I'm, I'm going to pause you. I'm going to pause you on that, Randy, because I know that there are two sides to that story. And I'm also pretty sure that we're not going to resolve that here because we don't have expertise on that. Uh, but you and I will both uh, I have, accept. I have, a, I have expertise on that. Sure. But you and I will both agree that there are two versions of that story and that people uh, are unable to agree on that. And I don't want to get into that. That's been something that's been debated a thousand times. But what I'm suggesting is that when a typical young black man sees that, they remember maybe an incident, maybe many incidents, when they were just treated discourteously or treated in a way that they would not have been treated if they were white, and they think that could have been me, and that is then emblematic. Well, you you have instances where 
where people believe that they are being mistreated and truly are not. For instance, mm-hmm. um, that when there is law enforcement is it tries to be responsive to um, to the statistical approaches to law enforcement. When I say that, I mean okay, there there's uh, a certain amount of of blocks in a city. Mm-hmm. There now because of all of the you know advents in technology. Law enforcement can look and say, okay, at this, these three blocks, we're having, uh, these are the highest crime areas in the city. Mm -hmm. So in order to be responsive to that crime that is statistical, they will put additional resources into that area to enforce laws and and deter crime. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? You do that by making car stops, by making pedestrian stops, by looking and proactively trying to um, stop crime. So, if you if you look at at uh, 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 you know a lot of police officers in a relatively small area where the, the the where where is the crime being committed and what are the who are the the people that are committing the crimes in minority communities? The people committing the crimes are minorities. Mm-hmm. In a black community, it, the white people aren't aren't flooding into the area to commit crimes against blacks. That's not happening. What's happening is uh, black gang members and 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 other criminals are preying on the good people who live in that area. So, who are police going to stop and make contacts with in that area? It's going to be those who uh, who uh, fit the descriptions of the of the people committing the crimes. So do, there's do you, going do you to think be, it's possible? Do you think that's pos- it's possible that that is colored by the prejudice of some cops? No, I don't. Okay. No, it's it's that it, it's just, it's just factual. If you if you're if you're policing a minority community, you're going to be stopping minorities. Okay. That's uh, okay. And here's, okay. Well, and here's then, the then respond to, respond respond to this one. Then all of the research outside of criminal justice. So, for example, uh, surveys on drug use, uh, hospital records on drug use, all, all interactions with healthcare and so forth, indicate that there isn't much difference between the drug use of different uh, ethnic groups, that basically black people use drugs more or less at the same rate as white people. But mm-hmm. black okay. people are arrested vastly more often for drug use now, they may be guilty, or almost all of them may be guilty, but the likelihood of getting arrested for drug use is far higher for a black person. The likelihood of getting incarcerated for drug use is far higher for a black person. And the prisons are literally stuffed full of black men who are nonviolent drug offenders. You need to do some statistical analysis because that's not actually true. Um, there are, uh, in order to get into prison, I know that it sounds like that there are nonviolent drug offenders that are flooding the prisons. That's, that, that's actually, um, not factual. The the study I have here is that black people are 2.6 times more likely to get arrested for drug crimes, even though they're committing those crimes at the same rate as white people. You can get statistical analysis that will say pretty much anything that you want to. No, this is this uh, is let, this is this is peer-reviewed uh, research. This okay. is very high-quality uh, research. 
Okay. Well, let, so let me give you some realities. Okay. Um, okay. You'll recall why um, the, the methodology used in in putting Al Capone in prison. He went to jail for tax crimes. Correct. Why did they utilize that that statute or those you know the a tax crime, which is considered basically a a low level crime? Why did they use that? To put him into prison. Because they could put him into prison with statistical evidence which didn't rely on getting witnesses from his community because they were all being intimidated. So they could get somebody who worked in the tax office to say he paid no tax. We can see he's living a high life. Therefore, uh, he's he's cheating on his taxes. Therefore, he goes to prison. Correct. Right. So was he a nonviolent offender? Absolutely not. Correct. So let me let me. I lived through the crack epidemic of, of the eighties mm-hmm. where, where there was, you know, uh, generally speaking, crack was controlled by gangs. Mm-hmm. They had the turf and they, they, not generally they, uh, always, um, for the most part. Yes. So how, how did the gang members protect their turf? They killed people mm-hmm. or they shot them or they assaulted them or they beat them or whatever. So, we would have, we would know who was committing these crimes. Uh, our, you know, investigative stuff. We we knew who was who was uh, committing the crimes, but just like Al Capone, we couldn't prove it because nobody would testify against them. So, how did we put them in jail? We put them in jail using drug crimes, right? We would we would we would actively pursue them on because the underlying issue was was dope so you would arrest them for selling dope which is a felony offense but it is a when you when you look at it you statistically it's a non-violent drug offense well we put thousands of violent offenders in prison using that course of action that is now being uh turned against law enforcement in just the same way that you just did it that the, that that the, the prisons are chock full of non-violent drug offenders. Are you suggesting that they are actually violent, but they just have not been convicted of the crimes of violence, and they've been convicted of some other uh, crime of convenience? Let's say. Yes. The, that seems difficult to believe just because of the vast numbers. So, for example, in I'm looking at uh, FBI statistics from 2013 that. Almost one in a thousand black person was arrested for drug-related offences in that year alone, which was about two and a half times the number of white people who were arrested. Is that really credible? I'm not quite sure where. I'm not quite sure that I understood what you just o- said. Almost one in a thousand black people were arrested in one year for drug offences. That's a huge, huge number. You're suggesting that okay. they are, well, and, they're and then, all, uh, they're all. No, not they're not not all, not all, not all. But let, you know, the the reality is, <clears throat> in order to get actually a prison sentence, mm-hmm. there is. I have never seen ever in 34 years of policing, I've never seen anyone go to prison on a first time drug offense, no matter what that offense was, other than some huge drug deal. You know where you're talking about mm-hmm. about large amounts of of cocaine. I've never seen anybody go to jail for marijuana. I've never seen anybody go to jail 
for possession of 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 cocaine or methamphetamine. Although they but, could get a record that would pretty much ruin their lives. Well, if they are in possession of that, isn't that what police are supposed to do? Is make arrests when they. Probably I shouldn't talk about uh, drug policy with somebody who's involved in enforcement and not policy. Uh, but just to switch it up a little bit, what do you think of the TV show Cops? <laughs> well, since I was on it for three three seasons, I have to say that maybe I'm prejudiced, but I think it did actually a lot of good for policing. How so? Because it, it actually... It was a first reality show, mm-hmm. and I it was literally I the was, first reality show, wasn't it? Literally, and I was on the second season of the first reality show, maybe six episodes on the show. Now, when they came to me and asked if I if I would ride with them, mm-hmm. I thought about it and I said, "I will," because I believe that this show will in re, will show the reality of of being a police officer. When the only um, information that people got on the media was from movies and scripted television shows. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I believe it did just that. People came to me. I, I can't tell you. I got hundreds of communications from people going, I, I had no idea that you guys had to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that was very positive. I think it, it, it was educational. It revealed, um, you know, the realities of uh, a lot of the human uh, uh, experience, mm-hmm. and I think that it that it it um, it had a significant impact on the way people view police. And uh, there's now live PD. It's not perhaps as iconic, but it's a very influential TV show nonetheless. What do you make of Michael Moore's criticism that you see? On the cops TV show, people, you know, cops running down the street and jumping on a drug dealer or whatever. You don't ever see uh, cops bursting into an investment banker's office and cuffing him, even though they've committed crimes that have put millions of people into misery. <laughs> well, Michael Moore, I've I've had uh, I've had one on one debates with Michael Moore. And Michael Moore is uh, is a big old blowhard. Uh, he, ne- he never, had, never mind, never mind the personality. The point is that Wall Street crimes that he, don't 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 enter the public consciousness in the same way. Well, it's well when you're talking about cops, they're looking. It's an entertainment show or live PD. They're looking at street cops who are doing street work. When you're talking about, I mean, what's what? They're just looking at at ratings. They're not looking at at uh, in a, you know going in and arresting an investment banker. What kind of? Why would you even you know bring up a, a television show when it comes down to the reality of policing and Michael Moore um, uh, criticizing that that cops or live PD doesn't show investment bankers getting arrested. That, that to me, is, is an inane kind of comparison. Oh, but hang on a second, hang on a second. Companies like Lehman Brothers, AIG, uh, Enron, and so forth, there were people in there committing very serious crimes that put millions of people out of jobs and into misery. That's relevant. And when you have a level of focus on, for example, somebody selling uh, $20 worth of marijuana that you don't get on those 
enormous crimes, that does tend to skew the the public view of it, doesn't it? You're, I, okay, you're you're completely going outside the lines of normalcy here. When you're talking about are police investigating those those serious crimes? Of course they are. The FBI exists to investigate those type of crimes. Do they belong in prison? Hell yes. Uh, but when you're talking about television and then and then jumping in with with uh, uh, the the police arresting people on on street crimes, you're talking about apples and oranges. You know, law enforcement officers get a huge amount of satisfaction of putting bad guys in jail. Well, those they couldn't care less whether those bad guys are wearing three-piece suits and working in an investment bank or that they are are attacking citizens. They, they cops want to put bad guys in jail. And there are tons of white-collar criminals going to jail. So it's happening just because it's not on television, on a reality show, doesn't have any bearing on it. Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant from Las Vegas Police Department, the founder of Wounded Blue and author of many books on policing. Thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter and follow Randy Sutton at LT Randy Sutton. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who has signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate those people. They help me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find that link on the website. Also there, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's March 9th, I'll be talking to the pastor and black Republican, Demetrius Minor. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.